Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Hi, this is Ilona Thompson with Palate Exposure. I'm here with Armen Kachaturian, or if some of you know Russian or other languages, um, such as Armenian, it's actually Kachaturian. I hope I said that correctly. Close enough. Close enough. Kachaturian, <laughs> I have to practice. Kachaturian. Yeah, yeah, that ha is really important. Um, he's a director of sales um, at Clos Duval, famed Napa Valley Winery. But first and foremost, he's a storyteller. Yeah. And we're here to learn about his personal story as well as professional. I really can't wait to dive in because I know there's so many facets to our men. So we'll start with your background and your childhood. We all came from somewhere. We did. We did. Um, born in uh, Iran, in Tehran, Iran. Oh, my goodness. Um, back when Iran was our ally, um, when the Shah was a, the president. And uh, left in the end of 77. Wow. Moved to New York. Uh, was there for about six months. Mm -hmm. Then moved to Southern California, to Glendale, because that's kind of where Armenians moved to. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> grew up in, uh, in Glendale. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know much about Iran. We left. Uh, not allowed to go back. Uh, because of political asylum and you know Armenians being Christians in a country that is not Christian once the Shah was gone all yeah. of a sudden the Armenians are like okay time to go somewhere safe so a lot of the army and how they ended up how Armenians ended up in Iran Iraq Lebanon uh, Syria Greece when you look at the history it all stemmed from the genocide yeah. when they all ended up going anywhere they could so then you have Armenians all over the world and so, um, yeah, moved moved to the United States and uh, uh, grew up in Southern California until about 20 years ago. Oh. So I moved up to Northern California. It's really interesting. Historically, Armenians became a nomadic culture because they were forced to be. Yeah. Um, so did the family move to Northern California from No, did no. Uh, I moved to Northern California. Uh, my mom is still in Southern California. My sister moved to Indiana with her husband. He's a professor at Purdue. Oh. Archaeology. Interesting. And, uh, so, so, yeah, we're kind of all over. Hmm. But What motivated the Northern California move? So, it's interesting. Uh, growing up Armenian, you know, you're, you're taught to do two, three things in your life professionally. Doctor, lawyer, dentist, and that order, <laughs> and that's how you're going to make your family proud. Mm. And I knew I wasn't going to do any of the three. Um, ended up a, a good friend of mine told me uh, I was kind of doing the JC thing for a while, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I was working a lot. He's like, "Why aren't you back in school?" I said, "Oh, I don't know what I want to do. Oh, I can't afford." It. I just came up with excuses. And you know, he was getting his master's uh, in pathology. He's now a neurosurgeon. Um, so I take his advice uh, pretty, mm. pretty, pretty well. And he looked at me and he goes, you know, they'll pay you to go to school. And I said, the what? He goes, yeah, that you can get scholarships and they will pay you to go to school. Huh. And I was like, wow, imagine not having to uh, work and, and get an education at the same time. So um, I ended up moving to uh, Roner Park, went to Sonoma State. Um, initially, I didn't know what I wanted to get. Education-wise, mm -hmm. but within three months of being there, 
I knew exactly what I was going to do. And I was going to get my degree in wine business strategies. Okay. So people that come to wine, usually the pathway leads through wine, not through a university. So how did that play out? So I was always interested in wine. Okay. Because any, so when you, when you meet a lawyer, there's always like, oh, I'm the top lawyer or a doctor. I'm the top doctor in this field. There's always a top person. Yeah. In wine, there really isn't. Even if you have a master psalm or master of wine, they're always learning. There's nobody that's going to sit there and say, I know everything and I'm done learning. And because if you we're, do, don't listen to them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because there's, there's always learning. Yes. And that intrigued me. And the fact that it didn't matter whether you were a novice or whether you're a professional, there's, there's something that... that equalizes all of us when we sit around a table with a bottle of wine yeah because someone is learning something new and someone might know but they're also learning something there's always something new to learn and it was interesting that you're not going to come across someone that says i know everything you will uh you, you can't teach me anything i have to speculate that your family culture was Definitely food friendly and might be wine friendly as well, but food has to be a huge centerpiece. Well, yeah, food was always there. My father uh, and his sisters owned a catering company. So growing up, I, I grew up in a, a big catering kitchen running around and having those smells of food. And, oh, my. And, uh, you know, but as a kid, I mean, I had all these amazing dishes that I crave for now that will take, you know, eight hours to make. But <laughs> I wanted to go to the dry storage room and get a four pack of Oreo cookies. Because oh. I'm a kid and that's what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, food was always a part of it. And wine, um, wine was never shunned. You know, wine was there. Important. But, but the, you know, the quality of wine that we drank growing up was not the quality of wine that we drink today, that I drink today. Um, but, you know, it all started somewhere. I mean, in high school, you know, uh, underage drinking is horrible. Uh, but the reality is in high school, people would take beers to parties. Um, I found Boone Strawberry Hill. And I was like, that's kind of wine. So <laughs> it started from there. And I remember uh, Vendage uh, Rosé or White Zinfandel or something. Of and then it went to um, uh, Sebastiani Cabernet. Mm-hmm. And uh, I still remember the 1996 Sonoma County Sebastiani Cabernet. You can find it, and it was like $20. And I thought I struck gold. I was like, this is so good. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it was, all, it was also my discovery of wine. And I can go back home and be like, hey, Mom, look what I found. Yeah. So That's awesome. So Sonoma State really kind of shaped a lot of your perceptions, right, of the wine culture? It did because um, I – was working in a restaurant mm-hmm. during the week, um, serving tables. And then on the weekends, I was working at a tasting room, pouring wine and talking about wine. And uh, the first winery I worked at was Fritz Winery. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember I'd be at that, you know, in the tasting room, Saturday, Sunday, eight hours, 10 hours each day up in Cloverdale and northern part of Dry Creek. And uh, I knew more about those six wines that were in front of me than our guests did. And so I can talk to them about that. But then they would teach me about things that they had tried that I didn't know. Yeah. And so I was teaching and learning at the same time. And that's when I was like, okay, I can, I can do this. People are happy. No one's upset. You know, if they get a misshipment or something, they're like, Where, where's the wine? People, I don't find a way to figure it out. But 
it's fun. It's meant to be fun. It's meant to bring people together. Yeah. And so there was none. There, we, I, I, I never had a day I'd go there and be like, oh, God, I got to pour wine for people today. So, and I've always been a people person. I love people. I could be exhausted. And you give me a choice between why don't you go sleep or why don't you go talk to these six people. And I'll talk to the six people for hours and just have a good time. And then finally, time for sleep. But that feeds my soul. People feed my soul. Wine is about hospitality. Yeah. If you leave with hospitality, everything else really takes a bit of a backseat. Sure. People don't remember the exact descriptions, name of vineyards, flavor profiles, technical notes. That can be found on a website. Uh, what is irreplaceable is that human touch. And yeah. you clearly honed into it early on and it aligned with who you are. It did. It did. And it's, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people said, have asked me to go, why is it you do what you do? How is it you do what you do? I don't know. It's, uh, I, I enjoy it. Second I mean, nature. Yeah. I can tell by it's, the way you speak about it, you're smiling. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, you know, it's funny. <laughs> I, I'm, I tend to smile a lot. Yeah. Um, so there you were at Sonoma State. What was your degree in? It's a business degree business with degree. a concentration in wine business strategies. Very cool. And you were kind of ahead of your time. You we were. were I, was the, I was the fourth graduating class. Mm -hmm. um, the first graduating class had two students in there. And then <laughs> uh, there was like four students in the second graduating class. Yeah. And I think they had like eight or 12, somewhere in between in the third. And then our group, I think, was I know, somewhere between 16 and 20. Hard to believe. It's yeah. such a popular degree now. Now it is. Understand. Yeah. Um, so you were actually kind of pioneering. Yeah, well, we had a lot of curriculum. Yeah. You know, was designed on the spot in some ways, right? We were the teachers were teaching, but they were learning as well. Yeah. And I remember the professors like, you know, we're going to hold on to your papers. So every paper we did, every presentation we did, the the professors held on to it. That's so cool. And and I I think they held on to it because they're like, I like the content. And I want to see how we can share this next semester. So they were learning at the same time. One of, one of uh, my of favorite professors was Dr. Liz Tosh. Oh, Liz oh Tosh uh, had moved to uh, Sonoma County maybe four years before that, maybe three years before that from Texas, and she fell in love with wine. And so while she's teaching these classes, she's learning about wine. And I don't know, 15 years later, 12 years later, she becomes an MW. The first female MW on the West Coast. I was going to say, the first one. Yeah, yeah I, and she I admire did that in 2011. And she's so kind oh, and she's so generous yeah. and so approachable. That's what I love the most about her. And then, of course, the impressive yeah. letters that take a long time and endless amount of energy and um, so many sleepless nights yeah. to obtain. And I still see her on a regular basis um, and talk to her. And... Uh, you know, we were at Texom together a few years ago and she called me and she goes, oh, my flight's late, my flight's late. And I said, oh, don't worry about it. And um, her flight came in late, of course. She missed the dinner with all the MSs mm. and MWs. And I said, don't worry, you can join us. And there was a group of, I think, 14 of us going out to dinner and uh, she joined us. And uh, But that's, that's what we do. Yes, and that's yeah. also part of the trade culture on the other side. You talked a little bit about interaction with the consumer. But the reason the community is so irresistible is because people are so generous and so interactive. There's really 
not a competitive spirit about it. Everybody's trying to better themselves in their own way mm -hmm. and become a better version of who they are professionally. But there's not no kind of um, pettiness. There's no, hey, it's me versus you mm -hmm. mindset. Yeah. And that's kind of what you're describing. It's just like people get together and doesn't matter how, um, how much notoriety they have. Sure. They don't wave it around. No. You know, it's interesting. Um, my first national sales job was at Hansel Vineyards. Mm -hmm. And Jean Arnold Sessions hired me. And uh, her late husband, Bob Sessions, one mm -hmm. of the greatest winemakers I've ever met, um, about a year and a half into me working there, he told me, he goes, yeah, back when in the 60s, we used to get together to park and nap on the, I don't know if it was the second or third Saturday of every month. Uh, and I'm like, well, who would you get together with? He's like, oh, all the other winemakers. And we would talk about what we were doing and we'd, we'd talk about what we were learning. And I said, who are the other winemakers? And he's like, oh, you know, uh, Robert and Peter were there. And he goes, this is when they used to talk to each other. And he goes, oh, and Andre was there. I'm like, Chelichev? He goes, yeah. And, and so he's naming all these people. And I'm like, wow, it's, it's, they're all legendary winemakers. Mm -hmm. And I said, so how was it? Um, he's like, well, you know, to put it in perspective to what you guys, what your kids talk about today, uh, we were all version 1.0. No one was worth 1.5. No one was 2.0. We were all the same. We all knew a little bit more than the next person about one specific thing. But no one knew all of it, and that's why we would get together and we would share winemaking and what we were learning. And that went away for a while, and it's mm -hmm. kind of come back. And now a lot of people are sharing what they're doing. I, I talk to friend, colleagues of mine all the time that travel the country and sell wine and tell stories. And I'm like, well, what are you doing differently? And how are you doing this? And we're trying to figure out together. Just so much better than being yeah. territorial literally, yeah. and saying, okay, I'm not going to share my secrets. The thing of it is, even if you do, the other person would do it differently. They exactly. would have their own version of it. Hopefully they do it differently. Because yeah. if they don't take ownership and make it their own, then it's not authentic. Absolutely. So, so post-graduation, did you go to Hansel or no, actually you went to Fritz? So, no, uh, so I was Fritz Winery and Landmark Vineyard. So Landmark. I was at Fritz and okay. uh, they said, well, you know, you need to do an internship at a winery. I said, I already have a job. They said, nope, not a job. You need to do an internship. It could be a paid internship, but it can't be what you have. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up at Landmark Vineyards doing the same thing I was doing at Fritz Winery. Right. But now it was an internship, <laughs> right? And drive was closer, which was nice. Mm. And it showed me a different aspect of what I was doing because it was mm -hmm. a different winery, different wines, different people. It was on Highway 12 instead of on the northern part of Dry Creek. Yeah. And... Um, you know, I did, I did that, and that was, that was pretty fun. Yeah. And when I graduated, uh, one advice that Clay Fritz told me, the owner of, Clay, uh, mm -hmm. of Fritz, Clay goes, I'll give you one piece of advice. And I've always remembered that. He said, before you go work on the supplier side, go work for a distributor's or sales rep. Because the only way you can work with sales reps and they'll respect you is if you've done what they're doing. Smart. Because and he and he goes, look, this is a guy who got his degree in theology and I think geography or geometry or something. And he goes, and here I am selling wine with people. He goes, it's I don't have that respect because I never did what they do. And this was in two thousand one, two thousand two. So I ended up working for Henry Wine Group as huh. a sales rep, and I did that for seven months. And I thought I was going to do it for two years. Uh huh. And uh, 
I got a phone call one day from Gina, uh, from uh, uh, Dr. Liz Tosh, mm-hmm. and she goes, I just had lunch with Jean Arnold Sessions from Hansel, and she's looking for a national sales manager. Do you know anyone? So Liz and I played phone tag for about a week and a half, and I kept saying, I have someone who'd be great, and she'd call back, and I would miss it, and uh, finally we connected. And she goes, I'm dying to know. Who, who is this person that, that you want to recommend? I was like, me. And she, dead silence. And finally, after 30 seconds, she goes, are, are, you, are you not happy? I said, no, I'm, I'm happy, but I could be happier. And she goes, okay, uh, well, let me give you Jean's office number and you can give her a call. What she ended up doing without realizing it is she gave me Jean's cell phone number, um, which worked out to my advantage because I called on a Friday at 2 p.m., West Coast time. Jean uh, picks up the phone and it's 5 p.m. East Coast time and she's in Boston getting ready to go to an event that no longer is just called Spinozola. It's 30 below and she picks up the phone. She can't, she goes, she goes, I picked it up because my glasses were not, I couldn't see the number. I thought Bob was calling me because it was a 707 number. And she said, uh, you know, I, I told her who I was and she goes, do you like to travel? because she's miserable in 30 below in a cab going to this event where she's going to pour wine for eight hours. She goes, do you like to travel? I said, of course I like to travel. She goes, what do you think of Boston? It's 30 below. I said, oh, I have family there. I'm sure they can help keep me warm. And she goes, why don't you send me your resume? And so I sent her my resume. She called me back. And this is when Hansel was in the middle of a TCA crisis. Mm. So they weren't selling any wine. And they were building a new winery. And so they were in, in the midst of all this change. And so I ended up meeting with her. Uh, she interviewed me. Um, and then uh, she got him back for a second interview. And I'm in the second interview. Bob Sessions walks in. In the middle of it, he opens the door and just storms in. He goes, Jean, who's this handsome young man you're talking to? And she's like, Bob, I'm in the middle of an interview. He's like, oh, oh. I'm sorry. She goes, it's okay. Do you want to see his resume? Kind of like, why did you interrupt? And so Bob looks over and he goes, uh, I see here you lived in Glendale. He goes, I grew up in Glendale. Bob Sessions is saying this. I'm like, Glendale, California? He goes, yeah. I said, cool. He goes, where'd you go to high school? I said, I went to Hoover High School. He goes, I went to Hoover High School. I'm like, you went to Herbert Hoover High School in Glendale between Burbank and Pasadena? He goes, yeah. He goes, I was class of 49. I'm like, oh, I'm class of 94. I said, simple case of dyslexia. We might as well have gone to school at the same time. And he turns around to Gene. He goes, go ahead and hire this man. And Gene goes, there go my bargaining chips. And Bob walks out and Gene looks at me and she goes, well, how would you like to come work at Hands Out? And uh, I started at Hands Out. How cool is that? I'd, I'd never done national sales. I didn't know anything about what I was doing. And I just knew I had to listen to Gene. So I just want to raise a glass and we'll talk about what's in a glass momentarily, but you had this almost instinctual mm-hmm. way of reaching out saying, I want this, I'm going to ask for it. Yeah. And we had a brief discussion before the recording that half the success is showing up yeah. and you were there present and things aligned, granted a bit of luck, Sure. but at the end of the day, you just shared with our viewers and listeners that you wanted something. And you found the internal courage to ask. Yeah. I had nothing to lose. Worst case scenario, she would say, I'm not interested. And I still had a job. Yeah. Good one. So cheers Cheers. to that. Um, 
and we're having a Chardonnay from 2018, which is a new vintage, I assume. It is, it is. This is um, the 2018 Estate Chardonnay mm -hmm. is from our vineyard in Carneros. The vineyard was purchased in 1973. Um, it's a, it was a 180-acre ranch, 130 planted at its peak. Uh, currently, there's about 70 acres doing some replanting. And there's Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Merlot, a little Cap Franc there. And this is 100% Chardonnay from our uh, estate vineyard there in Carneros on Old Sonoma and Buman. You know, this is a certain Chardonnay. Admit, you guys missed out on the unfiltered one. I really enjoyed it before we started taping. Um, they both share a similar characteristic, really bright acidity. Yeah. And, and it's funny because these all the wines that we make here are true to their sense of place. They're not trying to be something they're not. Um, our Chardonnay is not trying to be white burgundy. It's Carnero Chardonnay. Yeah. Um, I, th I think if you realize what you are and you, straight and you stay true to that, it's the best way to do it. And so our wines stay true to the vineyards. Um, there's not a lot of manipulation. Yeah. It's pick the fruit, let it do its thing. And Ted Henry, our winemaker, does such a great job at these clean, precise Very wines. Pure. Yeah. And, um, you know, Clodoval went through a, a complete renaissance period uh, over the last five years now where we shifted everything to an estate model. Mm. And our production went from a peak of 90,000 cases down to 30, 35,000 cases. And the quality of all the wines uh, really stand out. And, you know, it's a Chardonnay. You can get away with just making a Chardonnay. Most people don't sit there and contemplate a, a California Chardonnay. But, um, you know, Ted, Ted has this way of precise winemaking. There's a bit of a stigma that follows California Chardonnay that leans towards heavier, buttery, sure. oaky style. This is nothing of the no. sort. So if you like... Like you, like you just articulately describe, clean, precise, uh, focused. Mm -hmm. um, there's a bit of a tension there. Yeah. Um, really fantastic acidity would really stand up to a steak oh, in yeah. my book. Yeah. Um, that's what's in my glass. What's funny is this, this Chardonnay, um, I, it's a chameleon. Yeah. In the sense that if I have 10 people in front of me and I taste 10 people and I tell them, write down what you think of the wine. Half the people say, oh, I love how oaky it is. And half the people say, oh, I love that it's not oaky and the bright acidity. And it has this way of, of playing with people. It's not a big, oaky, buttery Chardonnay by any stretch of the imagination. But it does have some oak. Um, mm -hmm. It has partial mallow. It's about 20% new French oak, but it's really well integrated. And it, to me, it, it, it's a fun wine. I like, I like uh, starting wine dinners off with this wine. It just pleases everyone. Yeah, no, I can see my mouth is watering. I actually just retasted it because I was um, musing in my mind about the finish. It has quite a long finish. And oftentimes it's that juicy acidity that makes your mouth water, mm -hmm. makes you taste it longer. Yeah. So you don't even know whether or not it's an actual finish or what your own palate <laughs> is performing like. Yeah. But I find it utterly fascinating. Um, and a lot of times, like you said, Chardonnay is just a blank canvas that takes on the personality of the maker. Yeah. In this case, I can. If I were to taste a blind, I would say Carneros, just because cool climate. Yeah. Anyway, good stuff. Yeah. So, um, your 
selling wine at this point. I'm, where we I'm, left um, I'm, I'm traveling the country. Traveling a lot. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's funny. A lot of people say, oh, well, or, you know, like my title director of sales. If I had a choice to put a title, it's storyteller. Because Jean Arnold taught me, she goes, behind all of this wine and all the wineries and all the tanks and all the oak barrels and all the vineyards is a story. And that story is bigger than, oh, here's a wine, here's a score I got. Why is that wine what it is? Where did it start from? Where did it go? What... uh, what lucky things happen to it along the way? I mean, none of it. You can't say, oh, I'm going to plan it from beginning to end. And it's going to go exactly as planned. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you look at the story here at Cote d'Aval, first vintage 1972, Napa Valley, which later became Stagsley Wine District, mm-hmm. right? Um, there was no AVA. It was just Napa Valley. There wasn't much going on in Napa Valley. And that first vintage ended up four years later in a tasting in France, and it did well. It didn't get the first, second, or third place. I think it got seventh or eighth or something. Mm-hmm. But the French were like, no, 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 our wines need more time. So they redid that exact tasting in 10 years, in 1986 for the 10th anniversary. And Clodeval came in first. Well, first of all, the first vintage of this wine was included in the tasting that no one knew was ever going to be put together when they started the winery. And then Napa Valley's on the map, and they're riding that wave. And then they redo the tasting, and all of a sudden, Cotaval shows really well. Yeah. They didn't know that's going to happen, you know, but that's, that's part of the story. And being able to tell that story to people, like you said earlier, it's not, it's, it, you know, people don't remember the taste or whatever. They remember how they feel. Mm-hmm. And wine is so emotional. It's how you feel. Yeah. Usually, uh, you're celebrating something good. Sometimes, you're, you're remembering something bad. Right. But whether it's good or bad, you still have that one constant mm. and, and it clicks these it has these little memory triggers. So I can tell you dinners I've had and the wine I can't. And then sometimes I'll remember the food we had because of that wine. But I'll mm-hmm. tell you everyone who's around. Uh, I can tell you conversations based off that wine because it's memory trigger. I find it so interesting that you said sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. The majority of the conversations center on positive, joyous, convivial. Sure. But I've often said, somewhat in jest, but also as a practical piece of advice, if you're having a really bad day, open your best wine. Wine can be a fantastic companion when you're blue or life just really knocking you down. Um, And it's okay to open that bottle and drink it by yourself. And those sound selfish because wine is that story that helps you really look at yourself in that moment in time, Mm -hmm. maybe without judgment, but just as an old friend, it's, it's a bit of a facilitator. And I found this to be true in my highly personalized experiences. I actually lived that. I opened some of the bottled wine that I was probably arguably should have been hoarding to share. Um, and it works. There's something very special qualitatively about wine and like any other beverage that acts as the sounding board, as odd as it sounds. Would you agree? Absolutely. My father passed away when I was 12 years old. He was 46. And he taught me, you know, it's funny because a lot of people look at death and they think that's so sad. But if you take the learning lessons from it, you can live a great life, right? Because you never know when your time's going to come. So you have to live life. 
not be afraid of whatever might happen down the line. So um, a lot of times I have this amazing bottle. I'm like, you know what? Tomorrow might never come. So let's just enjoy it. And it's not, a, it's not a sad way of living or it's not a pessimistic way. It's the reality of can't take it with you. Your friends will take it when you're gone, but you can't <laughs> take it with you. And so, um, you know, like the other night we opened a bottle. I accidentally opened a, a wrong single vineyard burgundy. Mm. And at first I was like, oh, I don't want to open that today. I only had one bottle mm. and it was gifted to me. Uh, and I put it in the rack, but I put it in the section where I had another bottle. And all of a sudden, Jenny, my fiance, is like, wow, this, this wine is really good. I said, yeah. And I take a sip. I'm like, oh, this is really good. I said, hold on. And I looked at the <laughs> bottle and I said, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. I opened up the wrong bottle. And she looked at me. She goes, maybe you opened up the right bottle. I said, yeah, but we're having burgers at home. And she goes, Yeah. And it's the right bottle. And I said, you know what? You're right. And I just let it go. And we enjoyed that bottle. So great. Wise woman. Behind every good man is an even better woman, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, with, with, with wine, whether it's good or bad, you're celebrating something. Yes. And I think we, we're so good at celebrating success and, and life. Yeah. Sometimes we forget to celebrate failure yeah. and death. Yeah. Because in failure, you need to success, You need to celebrate failure. And part of that celebration is learning from it so you don't make the same mistake. That's right. One thing, one thing, uh, yeah, one thing Jean told me when I first started, she goes, listen, you're going to screw up. I guarantee you're going to screw up. And that's okay. Make sure you're the first one to come tells me that you screwed up and we'll figure it out together. Make sure I don't find out from someone else. And that taught me something. It's like, you know what? Mistakes will happen. But it's a mistake. It's not done on purpose. And even if it is, come clean, figure it out, move on. Because if you try to cover it up and you're spending your whole life trying to cover up this one thing that probably wasn't a big deal to begin with. So, um, yeah, I've, I've learned to she celebrate all of it. Sounds like a great mentor. She is. She still is. Um, uh we see each other. We, we talked on the phone uh, quite a bit. We see each other a few times a year. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's, she's a great, great woman. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.